will they literally work on that case even though it's a, a state from another uh, or a case from another state absolutely so i'll give you an example yeah. during uh the fight over the obama clean power plan uh that was argued in the dc circuit uh back in 2017 uh we were leading that case uh, but there was a really smart lawyer who used to work in our office who went on to go work in Wisconsin. He was the Wisconsin Solicitor General. And I was eager to bring him in along with our team because it made our team stronger. And we broke up the workload to make sure that the people with the expertise in the right area mm -hmm. got to do that type of work. And so I think you see among the states that there's a natural uh, uh, approach of deferring to the states that have the expertise. So, you know, we tend to do a lot of work in the administrative state either. It's what people commonly refer to as the swamp. It's grown way too big. It's acting without authority. So we have a lot of subject matter expertise in that area. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential. And here's your host, Jeff Crank. Well, thank you for being with us for another episode of American Potential. Real excited about today's guest and what we're going to talk about with the administrative state and many other topics. You know, sometimes when people see a challenge, they may think that that certain thing can't be done. But then there are others that say, ah, why not try? To me, that's the difference between successful leaders and those who go along to get along. Now, after being elected attorney general, today's guest took on the challenge of reining in the governmental agency that was overreaching their authority. Since assuming the position, he's prioritized combating fraud, waste, abuse, and corruption. He's one of the most proactive attorney, attorneys general nationwide, challenging federal overreach through legal actions, including lawsuits and amicus briefs submitted to the U.S. Supreme Court and other judicial bodies. He's a dedicated proponent of essential reforms. He aims to transform his state's economic landscape and facilitate it reaching its full potential. Now, before his current role, he held the positions of Deputy Staff, Staff Director and Chief Healthcare Counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives Energy and Commerce Committee. I wanna welcome West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey to the show. Welcome. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks so much. Yeah, well, it's great to have you. You really have been a champion on a lot of these issues and leading the way. We were just kind of talking about yeah. that beforehand. Talk about some of the great stuff your office has done, but also just West Virginia in, in general. Well, absolutely. So I'm an old regulatory lawyer by training, so I really get into a lot of the weeds, the details of this, because quite frankly, I've been passionate that the administrative state has been overreaching for decades. And so when I had the chance to serve as West Virginia's Attorney General, I knew that had to be a very important part of the portfolio that we were developing. Because ultimately, when you have an overreaching federal government, it has a very real impact on the states and her people. And so these are cases that really matter. A lot of times people talk about taking on the swamp or taking on the administrative state, right. but we do it with a very specific purpose because we're trying to keep our people free. We're trying to keep our businesses, give them the opportunity to succeed here in West Virginia. And so I think West Virginia has been out in front on a lot of these administrative law cases, and we've been successful because 
I think we're approaching it the right way to restore basic constitutional governance. And that's an exciting place to be. Yeah. Well, there's, and there's a couple aspects to this. The first one is the aspect of federalism, right? Right. Like restoring that the federal government is way too involved in lots of things that they shouldn't be. And then there's the administrative, administrative state aspect of it. Let's talk about first the federalism angle. Well, I think many people don't always appreciate when you look at our constitution, there are co-equal parts of government. It's the federal government and the state government. And of course, people always point out the supremacy clause, which of course exists, but our founders intended that the states would be a major vehicle for addressing most of the major issues that were to arise. They thought that there would be local government where most of the activity would occur, right. and there'd be state government where problems that are statewide in, nation, in nature. But then, of course, they thought of the federal government as only really dealing with a couple of the specific things interstate in nation in nature or going to foreign nations or foreign policy. So over time, that framework has been evolving. And I think one of the things we always have to do from time to time is to look at the basic document and restore constitutional governance and reset the roles of the states and the federal government. Because when you do that successfully, people enjoy more freedom within their states. Yeah. And that's so true. And I think there's got to be, you know, the the Constitution was so brilliantly written. And, uh, you know, you've got the checks and balances at the federal level that sometimes need to be reexamined and reevaluated. But at the same time, there's that whole issue of federalism and what is reserved for the states. Sure. Constitution's pretty clear on what is reserved for the states, everything else, right? right? That's not listed in the Constitution. And and that's the basic framework that our founders provided to us. So people like to think of federalism sometimes as some quaint term, but it should mean something because ultimately when and where decisions get made matters so much to our Republican form of government. And so when I think of federalism, I think of that structure where most of the decision-making is happening closer to home. And that's good for the people. It's good for them to be involved, good for them to be engaged. And ultimately, it means that the people are going to have more say in the decision-making that occurs. Yeah. So you've been very active on on many of these issues, um, uh, you know, on the administrative state. Let's start with that, the administrative state. What does that mean to, to listeners who are and viewers who are watching us? What does it mean, the administrative state? Sure. So the administrative state, in my mind, is what you refer to when you think of the federal agencies that are delegated power right. from Congress. And they have no more authority than what's actually delegated to them by Congress. And what's happened over a prolonged period of time, in part due to Chevron deference and uh, the growth of the federal government, is that these federal agencies have really grown to levels that even Congress couldn't possibly envision. Perhaps uh, Congress delegated them a more broad authority, but then over a period of time, these agencies almost seem to gain additional regulatory power by reinventing themselves. And as we get into the conversation and talk about a lot of the big questions of the day, you'll see that over a long period of time, the courts had provided more deference to these federal agencies, the administrative state, to come up with difficult solutions to the problems of the day. But in reality, the real question that gets fought in, do they actually have the authority to act in the first place? But the administrative state, I think it's a body of unelected people, um, but they need to be reined in and presumably act 
within the uh, direction that Congress sets. Right. Well, that's uh, what our framers of our Constitution intended, right? Sure. It was for some unelected person to do that. You know, people will say, on, maybe on the other side of the argument, well, these are the experts. They know what's best. And that's definitely not what our founders intended was for the experts to rule over us. No, that's right. And in fact, there are a number of cases I know coming up. We'll talk about West Virginia VPA. But yeah. um, after we won that case at the U.S. Supreme Court, I was talking about it a little bit. And everyone said, oh, my goodness, why are you um, advocating for this decision? Because clearly citizens or Congress don't have the expertise to address <laughs> questions pertaining to the climate. Right. And my response really was, the way our wonderful founding document was created, you actually have to look for participation in Congress from citizens from California, from Texas, from New York, from all of the 50 states. They're the decision makers, and you want to make sure that the whole country has a voice in the process. Once you start to move away from that and talk about the fact that this expertise is needed and you're not focusing on what's specifically delegated right. to these federal agencies, you run into a host of problems because um, I don't think that the administrative state should be a partisan issue. People should be able to uh, deal with their local uh, leaders, their members of Congress, and lobby and, and engage in, in various types of activities. But these unelecteds, they're basically unaccountable, and no one, regardless of political preference, should be for that. Yeah. Let's take a couple of examples, and let me ask you if these are the administrative yeah. states. So, the Obama or the Obama administration or the Biden administration deciding that they're going to increase, um, you know, fuel efficiency standards, or the sure. EPA saying, you know, we're going to make uh, make it more difficult for yeah. auto manufacturers. Is that the administrative state? Yeah. So that's a good example. There's a right. big debate going on right now about electric vehicles, right? And that ties into tailpipe emissions, and ultimately the separate efforts on the part of the uh, Biden administration to close down coal-fired power plants, right. natural gas, and really go after fossil fuel right. uh, generally. So in that particular case, you have a, a series of regulations that are being issued by federal agencies. And as these get challenged in court, the question is going to be, what authority does that agency have to act? Sure. And for instance, when the EV policy was discussed, we thought it was natural to say, now, wait a minute, that authority was not specifically delegated uh, to the EPA or to NHTSA. And so, therefore, if you want to reorder um, the nation's electric vehicle industry and you want to move to 70% mandated vehicles by 2032, that's something that Congress has to specifically address mm -hmm. at a minimum. You can't just say, well, that's complicated or we're trying to move yeah. in an environmental right. friendly direction right. and let's defer to the experts. You actually have to look for the pure delegation. That's not what's happened. And I would say that's an excess of the administrative state. Yeah. And one more example that I'll throw out there yeah. is, you know, the, the the idea now that we want to, that, that we don't want to, but the Biden administration wants to ban natural gas stoves, for instance. Is, yeah. is that another administrative state type issue? Absolutely. Right. So that's an example, again, of a federal agency that really lacks authority to right. act, and but they do it under the uh, direction that they're trying to save the planet and they're right. trying to move people to alternative fuel sources. Sure. But once again, um, whether you're for those policies or not, 
uh, you're better off in the long term in terms of preserving our constitutional form of government right. if you play by the rules. Sure. And what we've seen over a period of time is the administrative state is basically an outgrowth of violating the rules, that they're acting without authority. And right. Congress, in its zeal to try to uh, make itself popular, seemed to uh, shift more and more problems over to the administrative state sure. to make decisions, as opposed to making the tough decisions themselves, which is what really the founders envisioned. Yeah. Well, and that's a great example. You know, Congress probably is less likely to ban natural gas stoves if they know that their constituents aren't going to like that. But it's easy to do if you're kind of a faceless bureaucrat inside of the EPA or Correct. wherever, right? Yeah, that's why when you have an unaccountable agency, right. it's uh, very difficult for people because the average citizen has no recourse, if you will. Sure. And that's actually why state attorney generals are so important in the system, because at least we typically would have some standing to go and file a lawsuit right. to stop that type of overreach. And that's, in fact, what we've done. Certainly, I've been attorney general. I'm in my 12th year. And we filed many, many a lawsuit against the federal government. And usually, it's because they're issuing a regulation outside their scope of authority. And it's important for all Americans to know that impacts their daily lives. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the cases, because West Virginia really has been the tip of the spear sure. on a lot of this. But, you know, what would you start with? If you were going to explain how you've been the tip of the spear on yeah. going after the administrative state, what case would you start with? I, I think one of the biggest cases that we've drove over a long period of time is the famous West Virginia VEPA case. Mm -hmm. And that case stood for a very straightforward proposition that Congress gets to make the major decisions of the day. They write the law not the unelected bureaucrats. As I mentioned earlier, that's because when the founders got together, they didn't want some uh, executive branch that was unaccountable to the people to make the call. They thought that they'd get elected representatives from all the people, sit down in a room and make decisions. Right. And so West Virginia VEPA stood for that proposition. When you have a major question of the day, the courts were going to specifically look and see whether there was any explicit authority delegated to that agency. So, for instance, in that case, there was a big effort to reorder of the nation's power grid. And the Obama administration and the Biden administration somehow seemed to think that when you were going to do something as significant as reordering the nation's power right. grid, they could do it on their own. They could do it without actually going to Congress. The court said, no, that's not the case. Obviously, you can implement certain provisions of law, but you can't extrapolate authority on these major questions of the day unless you're being pretty clear as a congressional body. Right. What other cases do you think uh, West Virginia has led on with regard so to So there this? are a couple others. So, for instance, right now we're the lead state amicus in the Loper case. Yeah. That's the case trying to get rid of Chevron deference. Once again, this principle that the regulatory bodies have these expert this expertise. Talk about Chevron deference so that people understand Absolutely. that it, that was decided, you know, by the Supreme Court at one point, yeah, right? That's right. So if you look at this concept of Chevron deference, it you know came from a case Chevron involving Chevron, right. and you go back to the 1980s, and so. There was always a question for the court in terms of how you would engage in proper statutory interpretation. And so it's fairly easy if you read the statute and it's plain on its face. Right. Um, what the courts and the agencies always struggle with was what to do when you thought there was some ambiguity right. in the statute and who gets to make the call. 
And so there's been a long debate over the years, should the uh, federal agency make the call? Should you be deferring or uh, benefiting the people themselves? Uh, how, what's the role that the courts play? So over a long period of time, this concept Chevron deference developed, which started to give significant amounts of deference to the federal agencies based upon that expertise, based upon these perceived ambiguity. And I think the courts got away from looking, once again, whether there was explicit authority delegated to those issues. And very much like the major questions doctrine, where you're looking to see on a major question of the day, did Congress grant some specific authority on uh, Chevron deference? You also want to look and have, a, I think, a better tool that's not subject to such wild varying decisions, because Chevron ultimately, in its second step, comes down to this ambiguity. And I think you'd rather have just clear statutory tools to say, what does it mean? And if Congress wasn't really clear about it, what it means, you can't extrapolate authority right. and create something that doesn't exist. Yeah. You should always err on the side of providing the federal government with less power, because that means that more power is reserved for the states and for the people the way the Constitution envisioned right. it. So the Chevron Doctrine, uh, to explain maybe for folks that— you know, this, this, these are kind of complex issues for yeah. sure. But the Chevron doctrine right now defers to the agency to be the decider, the arbiter of what quote unquote Congress meant or to interpret it, right? Correct. And what happens is that the courts uh, would look and see whether the agency is acting quote unquote reasonably, right? right. Are they acting in a reasonable way? But I think that that usually confuses things because you really want to ask the question as to how should the statute be interpreted, not just whether there's some expertise mm -hmm. that may be in the possession of this agency right. or whether they acted reasonable. You could act in a reasonable manner, but still be wildly inconsistent with the statute. Sure. And I think that's the problem that people have with these terms, that they were trying to shift power to this agency. And let's be clear, Congress has been complicit in a lot of sure. these activities as well, because it's not easy to wrestle with the big questions of the day and to reach consensus on it. So this has been an easier tool for Congress to kind of kick the, the issue, the ball down the road right. to the federal agencies. Uh, but now we see the the results of that, that uh, volume of cases that come into the right. courts and the power that's been provided to these federal agencies is not good for our country. It's not good for our states. It's not good for freedom. Right. So you would argue then that it sh there should be a congressional deference, uh, essentially, that that the, the if there's a disagreement there, it should go back to Congress and say, what did you mean? Or, or Well, yeah, I think you have to look for, in my mind, you look for the explicit delegation. And yeah. certainly there's a difference also. The, the explicit delegation to, to, the, to agency, the agency. And right? if it's not there, it doesn't exist. Is that Co what you're correct. saying? Correct. And right. I, I think, uh, and I, I think Paul Clement talked about this in the recent uh, Loper case, yeah. that you're looking for questions of when the authority was actually provided was their specific delegation versus sometimes you could have instances where there is deference and it's explicit. We're going to defer to the agency to make the determination. I would argue that's different than situations where there's just ambiguity or silence in the yeah. statute. To me, when you have silence in the statute or you have ambiguity in the statute, you shouldn't be deferring to these big federal agencies who are really unaccountable. Yeah. So your argument then on that would be that if in the law itself it says 
Congress passes a law that says we defer to the agency to well, set if the it's standard. Well, pr- if it's proper. I mean, yeah. there, there's some limits. Sure. You, can't, of you course. can't defer everything. But, but, if but you're saying that's different than just being silent on it, cor- right? Correct. I right. think it is different because yeah. at least then you look to whether Congress made a specific choice. Now, look, I'm in favor of Congress um, being much more clear. That's a better situation because no one should want to empower all these bureaucrats to right. make the big right. decisions of the day. When we have elections, uh, we don't elect the bureaucrats to make the decision. And that's why I think a lot of these alphabet soup agencies, they've grown and obtained tremendous amounts of authority. I think it's better for a republic when that authority gets reined in. And quite frankly, this could be a topic for another podcast. More power ultimately devolves back to the states so they could take action. Mm -hmm. One of the big problems that we see today is that Congress can't self-correct. It hasn't been able to fix itself. So that's part of the reason why Congress ships more power to the federal agencies. Mm -hmm. But I think the better solution is to actually have the states be much more aggressive and proactive in asserting their authorities so fewer decisions are made at the federal level and there's more political accountability at the states and for the people. Yeah. So it would be a good thing in your mind if it was Congress deciding on whether voting, literally voting on whether or not gas stoves should be banned or, or not because they're accountable to the citizens who they represent. Well, it should at a minimum be a decision by Congress. Right. I don't personally think that gas stoves yeah. uh, should be bad. Well, I agree. And, and so no, I, agree. I, I think that Congress could probably uh, make its job a lot better by not taking up a lot of the issues yeah, of, of the day and, <laughs> sure. and saying, hey, states, this is something you need to address right. as opposed to getting the federal government involved in everyone's backyard. Yeah. I mean, we saw the impact of that in another big case that we drove. We led the way against the so-called Waters of the United States rule, yeah, right? right? Where the federal government through the EPA and the Army Corps, they were trying to regulate your backyard ditch and ephemeral stream and then uh, define it the same way, subject to the same rules as a federally navigable waterway. So right. think of your backyard ditch being regulated the same way as the Mississippi, the Potomac, right. and the Ohio. The reality is that the states and local governments are in a much better position to resolve those issues sure. because they're going to know whether your backyard ditch is in fact connected to interstate commerce or not. And I think that's what this is all about to me. It's trying to return more power back to local decision-making, which is superior, even if you don't always get the result that you want. Yeah. You mentioned, we briefly mentioned Loper Bright, but maybe talk about that case specifically. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is a pretty cool uh, case because there was uh, an issue of these uh, fishing boats and uh, they were uh, directed to have these monitors and it's costly for the fishing boats to have these monitors. And by monitor, you mean a person, A person, right? right, And kind of monitoring their catch and influencing how much money they're going to have to pay. And so uh, these fishing boats said, wait a minute, you know, that area of the statute was silent. It didn't speak to that. And people thought that it was pretty outrageous for these uh, fishing boats to have to pay a certain amount of money that Congress didn't specify. So this case has gone through the courts, and there was an argument just over the last week uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court as to whether, um, not just whether Loper Bright, whether the fishermen are going to have to pay their fees, but it's about what kind of deference do you give that 
uh, federal agencies that's monitoring, making decision about whether a monitor should be on these boats and what the level of burden should be on these uh, boats. Yeah. Uh, it, and I mean, this is, this is, could end up going several different ways, including yeah. all, I mean, everything from very specific to this case to overturning Chevron to right. the other way, right? Yeah, it could. And we don't always know what the result will be by listening sure. to the oral argument. I know that I listened to uh, good parts of it, and you could hear some good questions from some of the uh, justices uh, about whether there really was a disagreement over Chevron or whether the court could resolve it without overturning Chevron. And a lot of times the courts don't want to uh, go deeper and reach questions that they don't think they right. have to reach. So we'll see. Obviously, there are a number of us who do think that this is a good vehicle to overturn Chevron. It's time has come because it does cause harm. It does um, make it more difficult for states and citizens to take advantage of the powers and responsibilities that they possess that unfortunately I think have been uh, wrongly taken by the federal government. So this, uh, on this particular fishing regulation, it, 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 I just want to make sure I have this right. So the regulation was put in place, and then the agency came in and said, and not only are we going to put this regulation in place, but you are going to pay for enforcing this regulation by paying for these monitors to be on your fishing boat. Yeah, and none of that was addressed in the statute. Right. And so I think that the uh, the fishing industry rightfully looked and said, wait a minute, where, where is that? Point to it. Yeah. And so uh, silence doesn't equal consent. And so I think that's one of the principles that's being discussed in this Supreme Court case. And certainly uh, a lot of the advocates of getting rid of Chevron point to this case and say, this is a class example of a federal agency trying to cobble together power to make this work. And we know there's this concept called gap filling that you know Congress can provide some specific powers to the agencies sure. to fill it in. But I think what gets people really riled up about the administrative state is that when Congress doesn't take an action, where it certainly is not providing explicit authority, these regulators, these administrative agencies, they act on their own. And that's when people start to think, what are we? Are we, you know, what kind of role do we have in the yeah. system? We go to the voting booth, we vote, and what, what does it really matter? Yeah. And they'll say, when it comes to the administrative state, it means very little. Yeah. Is And I know you're not in Congress, uh, but what is Congress ready to handle? Like, let's say they had to do this. Are they ready to do this? Look, I think Congress always needs to be ready to do its job. Right, right. And uh, if they're not, you're going to have the state step up. I think we're at a critical point in time uh -huh. where the Supreme Court is beginning to provide additional tools to challenge the way things have been. We talked a little bit earlier about this major questions doctrine and West Virginia VPA and what that meant. I thought that was an incredibly important case, even less from a, an energy perspective, environmental yeah. perspective, more from a separation of powers perspective, because the court was really clear that it's going to first look and see whether Congress has acted before it's going to resolve any of the questions that the administrative agency is opining about. I think that's the first step in many, but it should send a real message to Congress 
listen, you need to do your job. And in fact, all branches of government play a role in how the Constitution is interpreted. And you want to look to that and make sure you get it right. And I certainly hope Congress can begin to better get it right. But at a minimum, there's an opportunity also for the states to constantly be stepping up because we see losses in freedom and power as a result of the federal government and the regulatory bodies just effectively seizing it for themselves. Mm Do do state attorneys general work together on these cases? They do. So when you look at the West Virginia VPA case, yeah. we had 23 different states uh, where who we worked with. If you look at the Waters United States rule, we had 25 states when we sued and obtained an injunction of the Waters United States rule. Uh, we had virtually every Republican attorney general in the country on it. So very, very significant. And you really have to work together mm-hmm. as state attorneys general because you're up against the uh, Leviathan. I mean, these guys have <laughs> sure. legions of lawyers. Yeah. The Department of Justice, there's seemingly many thousands of lawyers. And so when you're going to go up against an entity that's that powerful, you better bring a team. And yeah. so obviously we take these cases very seriously. And especially when we lead them, we have a team in our office, but we most certainly want to work with others, co-leads and other states across the country so that the court sees this isn't just about one or two states. It could affect half the states in America. And you want to get examples from the states. Practically, what does it mean not only for West Virginia, but for Texas, for Florida, and for many other states? Yeah. If you have, say, an expert in another state yeah. that can help you, I mean, do will they literally work on that case, even though it's a, a state from another or a case from another state. Absolutely. So I'll give you an example yeah. during uh, the fight over the Obama Clean Power Plan uh, that was argued in the D.C. Circuit uh, back in 2017. Uh, we were leading that case, uh, but there was a really smart lawyer used to work in our office who went on to go work in Wisconsin. He was the Wisconsin Solicitor General, and I was eager to bring him in along with our team because it made our team stronger. And we broke up the workload to make sure that the people with the expertise of the right area mm-hmm. got to do that type of work. And so I think you see among the states that there's a natural uh, uh, approach of deferring to the states that have the expertise. So, you know, we tend to do a lot of work in the administrative state either. It's what people commonly refer to as the swamp. It's grown way too big. It's acting without authority. So we have a lot of subject matter expertise in that area. Mm-hmm. However, there are a lot of areas. You know, if you look at immigration law, you know, that's a hot topic right now. You know, we focused a lot on the drug-related piece of this, you know, fentanyl coming in to mm-hmm. the United States because it slaughters our citizens. But Texas and other states have taken the lead in terms of the underlying immigration law issues, mm-hmm. federal and state par- uh, power. And I think that makes sense because you don't have the number of bodies to deal with every single issue coming up. DOG, DOJ would just swamp the states if you only had five people to work sure. on this. Yeah. Um, so West Virginia has led the way in a lot of these, but it also led the nation, I think, in another area, and that's in educational freedom with the Hope Scholarship. Yeah. And, you know, 10 years ago, the, like most Americans thought we'd never be where we are today sure. on some of these educational freedom issues. The Hope Scholarship was passed. West Virginia, in my view, led the way on on that issue. Right. But then the law was challenged. Talk about that. Absolutely. So there were a lot of people that uh, didn't support this concept of educational freedom that we love so much. Sure. And, 
And so as the state attorney general of defense of state laws typically falls to my office. And so when this came up, there was a lawsuit and they tried to set this aside, I think because a lot of the uh, teachers unions and the uh, public schools, uh, some of the folks in the school said, look, they were very worried about what would happen when you injected a little bit of competition into right. the system. Uh, we thought that this law was properly passed by our legislature and that our kids and our families deserve this opportunity because in West Virginia, we were really anxious to do something to grow our educational attainment rates. Imagine for all those listening, if you're living in a state and you're typically 48th, 49th, 50th in terms of educational policies and attainment, in terms of standardized tests, and you're looking to do something bold that's going to empower our parents and our kids. Right. That's what the Hope Scholarship was all about. West Virginia is not a rich state. So to give a lot of our families the opportunity to go to the school of their choice, it could be a public school, it could be a private school, have the ability to go in, that makes a huge difference. That's the kind of thing that we should be encouraging. Also, I do think it helps from a competitive perspective because then you get out from the problem that we've seen over a long period of time where these schools, you start to wonder what they're really teaching the kids. Sure. You start to look at a lot of the education that's going on, and especially during COVID, people learn that there was a lot of stuff taught the parents knew nothing about, sure. and it wasn't helping the kid get educated. It was going down this far left woke perspective. I think West Virginia in choosing the Hope Scholarship is giving our citizens a choice. And we need that choice because it's empowering parents. It's giving uh, kids an opportunity to grow up and learn um, and the, the kind of lessons that are going to allow their kids to develop and not just become kind of captured by some right. of these far left principles. Yeah. So what was their challenge to the law? Was it on, was it on religion, like uh, first amendment grounds or what Well, was there it? were some provisions in West Virginia state law that they were arguing uh, principally that uh, there was a requirement that you could, you have to provide for a thorough and efficient education. And that was the, uh, the language that they were focusing on. And they argued that if you, t you were to take any of the money away from directly from the public schools yeah. and quote divert it that somehow you are not meeting that test. We argued obviously the opposite that it wasn't just a pure financial test because you can still meet the needs of kids and meet the thorough and efficient test um, even if some of the money is being provided to give schools another opportunity. And also we made the point that every year the legislature has to review the state school funding budget, right. and they do that. And then that way you can always see whether a school is being deprived or not, and the legislature could step through, and that's actually appropriate. Ultimately, legislature should matter. It shouldn't be courts uh, making up all the rules. And, right. and so we got a good result there, but we have to be vigilant because you don't know whenever this, this could get challenged into the future. I think one thing I look to do is to further expand in school choice because I want people across the board, regardless of your income, if you're a poor student in particular, I want you to have the ability to go to any school that you want and have some help. And sure. that's going to make things a lot better for the kids. Yeah, well, that's what uh, parents with wealth and with money have had forever in that's our right. system. That's right, and this levels the playing field yeah. a little bit. And I think that's cool for a, uh, a poor state like West Virginia because we have a lot of good people in our state. 
but we just don't have some of the resources of other yeah. states. I want to get to the point where we can really succeed and fight and compete with all the states that we touch and grow our state economically. Sure. I'm really passionate about that. Yeah. What other issues or cases are you, yeah. are you working on? Kind of the final question to, to give us some of the, some of maybe a look ahead of some of the great things sure. you're doing too. Well, a couple things. First, uh, there's really been aggressive assault on the energy industries in our state. Sure. And so West Virginia has been out in front. I mentioned the Waters United States rule. I mentioned West Virginia VPA, which is really uh, the Green New Deal where they're trying to get rid of fossil fuels. So West Virginia plays an important role in pushing back on all those regulations so that we wouldn't be able to utilize our coal or utilize our natural gas. Uh, these are regulations that would hurt our manufacturing uh, base. So we're out in front defending that. We'll be filing litigation uh, against the so-called methane rule and these efforts to make it harder to use uh, natural gas. We're also very focused against this concept of called ESG, environmental social governance uh, movement. Mm -hmm. And in particular, there's going to be a lawsuit that we think we're going to be leading on where the Securities and Exchange Commission, this is a wild case, the Securities and Exchange Commission, they are trying to require publicly registered to companies to be able to uh, have disclose their direct emissions, their indirect emissions, and then any of the emissions from any of the entities they have contracts with. Now start to think about this for a minute. Most people, when they hear of the SEC, they think of uh, fraudulent pricing. They think right. of investor security, protecting your investments, right? That's what you thought of when it was first created back in 1934. Now you have uh, the Biden administration taking a look and saying, wait a minute, we want to dramatically expand reporting requirements for public companies. And they do that in order to really put a lot of political pressure on the companies to force them to disclose and ultimately then to be shamed into doing more sure. to address so-called climate issues when there's been no statutory authority right. to force them to do sure. it in the first place. This is the worst form of government abuse because you're trying to use the power of the state to make companies state actors. Yeah. That's not right on any level. Yeah. And that's the kind of heavy handedness that we have to oppose. I'm out in front leading a 24-state effort, pushing back in that area. It's a really big case if you care about administrative law, if you care about the separation of powers between the states and between the federal government, the executive branch, judicial, legislative. So that's one big case we're working on. Then separately, we're also doing everything we can to stop the flood of fentanyl into our state. It's been a disaster. Our people are dying at such an alarming rate given what we're seeing with the amount of fentanyl that's smuggled into the U.S., West Virginia just pays a very high price for mm -hmm. that. So we're pushing back as much as we can in that area. But I will tell you, it's going to be incumbent overall for the states to be able to step up and push back against this federal leviathan because they've grown far too big. And I think that state attorneys general, state governors, state treasurers, state agencies are all going to have to be part of this process. Yeah. So the ESG case that you talked about yeah. is a great example, I think, of, a, of the administrative state, right? Yeah. That's something where they are just taking it upon themselves rather than going back to Congress. If Congress wants companies to report that, 
then they should they pass should that, so right? say. And in yeah. fact, when we won the big West Virginia VEPA case up at the U.S. Supreme Court in June of 22, I was asked uh, by the media, "What's the next big case?" And I pointed to the ESG case because I said, "Look, the SEC was never provided with that authority." They're an investor securities arm. Right. They want to protect mom, uh, you know, grandpa and grandma from being ripped off by right. unsavory characters. Right. It was never meant for climate change. What expertise does the SEC have in climate? And the answer is none. And so we have to get back to that core constitutional government where each agency has specific delegation. If you're talking about the EPA, and your delegated specific authority, you could be an environmental regulator, but you're not asking the EPA to do everything known to man. Likewise, with the SEC, you don't want to transform them into being an environmental regulator right. or the Secretary of State to be uh, an environmental regulator. That's where we have to get back to the basics. I think focusing on core constitutional governance, separation of powers. You know, it may not excite everyone, but it really dictates what's going to happen to our country into the future. Yeah. Mr. Attorney General, thanks for joining us. You're doing great work in West Virginia. Well, thank you. It's uh, we're, I feel fortunate. We have a lot of good team, but I want to do a shout out. The other attorneys general, we do work as a team. And I think that we've had great uh, partnerships uh, with so many different states across the country. It's never one state doing it uh, by themselves, and you have to work together. Otherwise, we won't be successful. The DOJ has a lot of lawyers, and the federal government is very large and powerful. You need 10, 15, 20, 25 states banding together to fight back. That's exactly what we've done, and that's what I plan to continue to do. Great. Mr. Attorney General, thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. Well, this is a great example of the administrative state. We talked first about federalism and the concept of federalism and how important uh, that concept is to our Constitution, but also this administrative state. And thank goodness we have folks like uh, the Attorney General of West Virginia, Patrick Morrissey, fighting this on behalf of the citizens of West Virginia, but honestly, on behalf of the citizens of all of America. Hey, listen, liberty and freedom, they're precious. Always stand up and fight for liberty and fight for freedom. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.